Good morning. It's Wednesday, the 30th of August, and this is Govind Rajay Thiraj coming to you from Mumbai, India's financial capital. And our top stories and themes for the day: the flour milling industry says allow exports of packaged atta for NRIs as chapatis can't be made with other wheat. Companies feel the pressure as regulators force them to disclose more information. Disney goes the Geo way will offer free streaming on mobile for the upcoming World Cup cricket championship. LPG cylinders to get a 200 rupees subsidy. And Uber says its drivers have earned 50000 crore rupees on its platform in 10 years. This is a core report with Govindraj Athiraj. Before I start, India is poised to experience the driest August since 1901, which senior meteorologists say is a clear result of intensifying El Nino conditions, according to reports in the Press Trust of India quoted in newspapers. Also, this monsoon may end up being the driest since 2015, which recorded a rainfall deficit of 13%, they said. Companies feel the pressure as regulators ask for more disclosures. The recent circular from the Securities and Exchange Board of India (SEBI) hopes to provide more transparency and improve the timelines of corporate disclosures. Disclosure requirements broadly under Regulation 30A, which came into effect from the 14th of July, have now been extended to encompass public shareholder agreements including family settlements to the extent that these impact management and control of the listed entity. That's in quotes. Dissenting voices are already emerging. In an article titled Shooting Sparrows with Cannons a few weeks ago, lawyer Cyril Shroff argued in the Business Standard that SEBI's amendments aimed at strengthening corporate governance failed to reconcile the virtues of public disclosure and protection of private domains. Like a good lawyer itching for a fight, Shroff went further. He says, or should I say thunders, transparency is not a untrammeled obligation. It needs to be tempered with reasonable restrictions and safeguards. Broad strokes instead of calibrated refinements of materiality, timing and exceptions could lead regulation 30A to the brink of a constitutional challenge pitted against the fundamental right to privacy under articles 14, 19 and 21 of the Indian Constitution. It may be tested for both reasonableness and proportionality. Amit Tandon, founder and MD of Institutional Investor Advisory Services, a leading investor advisory firm, said also in a business standard article that companies have begun to disclose family settlements and yet within a few weeks of the notification we are seeing divergence in how companies are disclosing these to understand where this was heading and if companies would eventually comply or push back i reached out to tandon and i began by asking him what he was taking away right now if we kind of step back and look at what has happened over the years i would say that disclosures is something which the regulators have always emphasized or focused on and this is something where companies are also again uh, up maybe with a lead like uh, whatever because the expectations keep changing but this is something which they have done basically well one level it should surprise us because when you look at sebi and their principle under which they operate it's always been a disclosure led regulation and therefore the emphasis has always been on regulation if i repeat look at it we've been looking at companies over the years in terms of what their governance practices are 
and how they kind of get up. And we use what is called the SEBI OECD principles. And there are six pillars for the OECD principles. And one of these, I can kind of go through them, but you know, suffice it to say, one of these are disclosures and transparency. And we then kind of look at how companies do. And what is interesting is that the pillar of disclosure and transparency is where corporate India has always done better than the other pillars, which are, let's say, equitable treatment of stakeholders or responsibilities of the board and role of the stakeholders as far as companies is concerned. So that's something which they've done well. And that is something which we have to give credit to the regulators, but also to the companies. Now, as you would expect with anything, once you have regulations in place, it does take time for uh, corporates to get used to it. They kind of start disclosing it. It begins with a tick in the box. Investors also look at it and kind of absorb it. But as you kind of move forward, you will find that this evolves, this becomes a little bit more sophisticated. And this is what is a constant cycle which we see where they're required. So, you know, what do companies do and how do investors think about it? So let's take the fact that SEBI asked companies to have a dividend policy. Companies did start declaring a dividend policy. And in the first instance, they said that, look, I'm going to simplify it a bit, but saying that, look, the year we earn more profit and we have more cash on our balance sheet, dividends will be higher. The year's profits are low, cash balances are low, and we have CapEx planned. Dividend payouts are going to be low. But in a sense, it's not telling you anything new. And therefore, after a year, two years, companies started disclosing what their target payout ratio is. And as companies started disclosing it, investors started absorbing it. And then they kind of started looking at, you know, is the actual payout in line with what the policy is? So I've given a very simple example, but you can multiply it across different disclosures which the companies have been making. Got it. Now, in a broad sense, before I come to how companies are geared or not geared, where do we stand as a country in contrast with, let's say, the the best case situation when it comes to disclosures? I mean, you did say that in this pillar, we are strong, but are we strong at a global level or at any sort of best benchmark level? So look, I like to believe that we are pretty high up out there. One of the things which worries me is that maybe there is too much disclosure. And in some of that, because of the trees, the woods are lost or in this case, it's the other way around because of the woods, the trees are lost. There's a lot of disclosure and the companies are not saying that, look, this is significant, this is less significant because that's a value judgment which they then expected to make, which can have consequences for them. So they kind of just do a listing in terms of what is happening. Some of it is good, some of it is bad, and therefore the investors are expected to sift through it and therefore some of it gets lost. And you know, what is worth noting is that, you know, the disclosures are going up and not just what regulators want, but if you kind of look at the balance sheet sizes of all the annual accounts which companies publish, forget the glossy bits which they have, but the amount of disclosure has also kind of steadily been going up. So annual report, which might have been 80 pages about 10 years ago, is about 360 pages today. So there's a lot of information for people to kind of call out and then to digest, which becomes a bit of a challenge. And then you kind of add to it the fact that, you know, you have ESG disclosures coming up and we've kind of seen the first cut of the BRSR, but that is only going to become a little bit more nuanced and a lot more sophisticated as we go forward. So I think there is going to be an information overload 
can we use technology to read it and make sense of it? I'm sure we can, but there's going to be a long learning path for investors with regard to how they do. Companies, of course, need to take a step back and see how are they going to be capturing this information. It's all very well to say that you have to get A, B, C, D, but you have to figure out how is that data captured? How is the data then disclosed? What are the units which you're using to disclose it? There are sets of challenges and it will take with all these things before there is some degree of standardization in the market. What's the one example that you think of when it comes to too much disclosure? As in, there is a struggle to put that together and put it out and equally maybe on the part of investors to analyze and assess what that really means. Let's give an example on weights and measures. Now a company might have different factories, etc., etc. Now I have one factory, one shift, there's a misalignment that, that they're supposed to disclose it. One is the companies are struggling. Should they disclose it? Should they not disclose it? If they disclose it, it's not a very material development part. As an investor, I don't know whether this should be worrying or it's a one-off. So those are the kind of issues which are agitating investors at this time, but also companies, because you know you have to remember, once you start disclosing a particular fact or event or development, you cannot stop disclosing it going forward. It's something which the market will then come to expect from you. And coming down to is the fact that figuring out what is material, what is not material, and then disclosing what is relevant to the market in a manner in which the market is able to absorb it and understand it. So you're also saying that, therefore, this is how it should be and companies and management should get used to it? Or are you also saying that maybe the regulators need to go a little easy and relook at some of these things, like the family dispute angle that you gave us? Look, at the end of the day, there's always a trade-off between what's the right amount of information and there is always a trade-off between ease of doing business and getting companies to disclose more and more information. I think it's a very thin dividing line. So it's very hard to argue that companies should disclose less. But I do think that, A, they need to give thought to the materiality and therefore disclose that and also be clear in terms of how is that going to be impacting the company going forward. So the way I kind of like to think about it is that the leader should ask themselves that, you know, whether a particular disclosure or whether it's an event or a development will make the company more attractive to investors or less attractive or leave its value unchanged. If it's going to leave the value unchanged, they can kind of take a hard call in terms of what is it they disclose and at what time. But if it is certainly less attractive and more attractive, those are the more critical disclosures that they need to focus on. Right. Amit, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for inviting me. Meanwhile, in the stock markets, the Reliance Industries stock was down about 22 rupees to around 2,422 rupees. I'm only saying this because we spent a good part of yesterday listening to and reporting on the company's 46th AGM or annual general meeting and its plans and announcements. The BSE Sensex ended flat on Tuesday at about 65,076 points, up 79 points. The Nifty 50 closed at 19,343, up 37 points. Geofinancial, the demerged finance company subsidiary of Reliance Industries and the stock that was hammered consistently last week was up around 10 rupees to 221 or 5%. At this price, it's still below its listing price of a little under 250 rupees last week. 
In some other business news, Maruti Suzuki India said it will double its production capacity to 4 million cars in the next eight years by investing around 45,000 crore rupees. Its chairman, R.C. Bhargava, said yesterday, Maruti, he said, had taken 40 years to reach 2 million cars, but will add another 2 million in just eight. He also said that Maruti will deal with a lot of technologies, including electric, hybrids, compressed natural gas, ethanol blended, and used of compressed biogas going forward. Maruti has been somewhat neutral on electric and has made a case for approaching it in a more calibrated way. Though he said, that's Mr. Bhargava said, it's difficult to predict what will happen in the next 8 to 10 years in terms of new technologies. Maruti, in case you've forgotten, began life as a government-owned company. Export ATA or flour to NRIs India's diaspora, with whom we obviously have strong emotional and other ties to, is having a twin problem. They're finding it difficult to source rice and wheat, rice to make rice and wheat to make chapati. The solution? Coming up in a moment. Exports of wheat were banned last year in May after the Russia-Ukraine war started, ending February 2022. On rice, last year India banned exports of broken rice, last month it banned exports of non-Basmati white rice and last week a 20% export duty was slapped on parboiled non-Basmati rice. Sanjeev Puri, chairman of consumer products and tobacco company ITC, told Bloomberg yesterday that India's decision to ban exports of wheat and rice should be short-lived once food supply stabilizes in the country. The company told analysts its agriculture business revenue declined 25% in the April to June quarter thanks to that ban on wheat exports and by extension wheat products like flour or atta. To understand where we were and to recap India's wheat position, I spoke with Pramod Kumar S., the president of the Roller Flour Millers Federation of India and also director of the Bangalore-based Sunil Agrofoods. I began by asking him to take us to the stock, price and supply position. First of all, the production figures of India is close to 100 million tons against the government's figure of 102 to 103 million tons. So with regard to availability, availability is not an issue anymore because of the various steps taken by the government in the market in the form of OMSs in the last two months actually. And also because of the imposition of stock limits and stock declaration. So I think from the time the government has increased the quantum of release into the open market, the prices are quite stable. But I think overall we are short by 4 to 5 million tons of wheat actually. So I think either the government should do a G2G import or allow the private trade to import. Say to the extent of, if you allow the private rate, probably we will import not more than 3 million tons or something. So, it's all more than a year that we banned the export of wheat. What impact has that had now, if you look back? See, last year and the year before that, from where the export started, it was from, it's exactly from the time when the Russian war started actually. So, India has never been a regular exporter of wheat, to my understanding. Whenever we had huge stocks and we have sold at a distress, you know, just to offload our stocks. So, as far as India being a regular exporter of wheat, unlike rice, is not there. So, by ban of exports, what has happened is, see, last year, our production was close to 93 million tons, then we exported 7 to 8 million tons. So, the prices spiraled from 22 rupees to 35 rupees in the Indian market. Wheat prices. So, this year also, the prices opened up pretty low because of the intervention by the government in the month of January, February and March. And after May, suddenly the prices jumped up again. Then the government had to resort to stock limit and intervention of open market prevention scheme. So that has kept the market school. 
So availability at the moment because of the government's continuous supply, it looks good. There's no problem as such as of now. I think government has managed it pretty well. But we don't have access to export. I think we have to import 3 to 4 million tons of wheat. I mean, there's no question of exporting wheat from India at the moment. I mean, revocation of export of wheat will not be allowed because I think we need to import wheat actually. Right. So, can I pick up on a statement that the ITC chief Sanjeev Puri made yesterday? He said that basically their earnings in their agribusiness is down substantially because of the ban on wheat exports. Now, the exact number is not mentioned, but you feel that it affected other companies as well or apart from them? See, actually, this export of wheat was a one-time opportunity which came in in the last one and a half year. And before that, I don't think anybody has exported wheat from India. Even the big companies? Even the big companies. I think it was a one-year opportunity because the world markets spiraled to much higher prices than the Indian prices and there was parity in export. Neither before that also, I don't think there was parity for export. What has impacted is the export of ATA, actually. Export of ATA has been impacted. They were exporting wheat and ATA both. We also see that the government should allow the export of ATA in consumer packs for the Indian diaspora across the world. Because you can make chapati only out of Indian wheat, not out of any other So, what is the amount of ATA that's exported in a good year? I think not more than 2 to 3 lakh tons on an average on a consumer pack. Not more than that. So, that's less than half a million ton. Yes. I mean, don't go only by one last year's figure. You take last 5 years, 10 years average, you'll get the correct. Okay. So, if you were to look for the next 3 to 6 months, how are you seeing the wheat price situation in India? I think it looks pretty tight actually. But because of the government intervention and if the government reduces the import duty to zero, probably prices will be under control. Okay. So, it goes back to the point that we should be importing some as opposed to… I think some because it helps us because there has been no rains and at least in the southern part of India, last 3 months we have not seen any rains here. And whole of Karnataka has not seen any rain. And I hear the same thing about most parts of India. So, this is going to affect supplies in the second part of the year or? No, I don't think so. I don't because, I don't know, wheat it will not affect because wheat comes in the February March. If it does not rain for some more time, it will affect the sowing. As far as the crop is concerned, it has got nothing to do at the moment. Rains have got nothing. Pramod, thank you so much for joining me. Okay, sir. It's free cricket coming up. Reliance's Geo Cinema seems to have set the precedent after it launched free-to-watch on its app of the India Premier League or IPL cricket season which ran for two months after starting end March. Disney is now following suit by acknowledging it misjudged Indians' willingness to pay. People signed up for Hotstar when it had IPL, that was last year, but didn't stick around to buy more premium plans to watch other content, Disney officials told news agency Reuters. Free cricket is the only bullet left, the officials said. Making cricket free on mobile will help 450 million plus consumers to tune in over 48 days of the 50-over World Cup that's being hosted by India, compared to 300 million in the last World Cup in 2019, according to a Festival of Cricket 2023 Disney presentation created for advertisers and seen by Reuters. The core report has independently confirmed the existence of this presentation or report which has been seen by Reuters. Now, Disney Hotstar is looking at a record of 50 million concurrent viewers during the World Cup, which is again is double the 2019 number, according to that document. This will also be possibly 56% higher than what Geo Cinema clocked during this year's IPL finals in May. So, to recap, Disney Hotstar will stream live matches of the Asia Cup that starts tomorrow, as well as the much-awaited World Cup in October to November, all for free. 
Disney has rights to show the International Cricket Council's tournaments in India from 2024 to 27, for which it paid around three billion dollars. Last year, it licensed the TV broadcast rights to Z Entertainment for around 1.5 billion dollars, but retains digital streaming rights, according to Reuters. A Disney official also said that they would target advertisers with budgets as low as 200,000 rupees. And another initiative would be interactive ads connecting watchers to a brand's WhatsApp chat to enable purchases of products. From entertainment to state of our lives, India's pollution levels are high. Since 2013, India has been responsible for about 59% of the increase in global air pollution. The University of Chicago's Energy Policy Institute, or EPICS, Air Quality Life Index annual update for 2023 has said the report had highlighted that the South Asian region, which accounts for almost a quarter of the global population, that's almost 23%, is grappling with the dire consequences of air pollution. Bangladesh, India, Nepal, and Pakistan, all part of this region, face a reality that their citizens can expect a decline of almost five years in their life expectancy if these pollution levels persist unchecked, according to reports quoting this report. India's northern plains stand out as an epicenter of pollution, with over half a billion individuals, or close to 40% of India's population. Residents of this region could lose eight years of their life if pollution remains unchecked. The region includes Delhi, whose pollution stories we are, of course, quite familiar with. Speaking of pollution, an important constituent of it is indoor air pollution. World Health Organization or WHO figures as of November 2022 say some 2.4 billion people worldwide, which is around one third of the global population, rely on open fires or inefficient stoves fueled by kerosene, biomass such as wood, animal dung, or crop waste, and coal for cooking. This leads to indoor air pollution, contributing to some 3.2 million deaths in 2020 and 237,000 deaths of children under the age of five. More LPG cylinders could therefore help in general, particularly in countries like India. Back home, just as the festival season is getting ready to kick off and elections further out, the government has announced a reduction in price of LPG or cooking gas cylinders by two hundred rupees for all consumers. For the beneficiaries of the PMUY or the Pradhan Mantri Ujwala Yojana, this would be in addition to the two hundred rupee subsidy already received, making it a four hundred rupee subsidy. The government says it will provide an additional 7.5 million Ujwala or PMUY connections, taking the total PMUY beneficiaries to around 103 million. The cost of this additional subsidy of 200 rupees per LPG cylinder is expected to be 7,680 crores for 23-24, according to government officials. And before I go, ride-hailing company Uber has put out some interesting numbers on completing 10 years in India. Uber says drivers have earned over fifty thousand crore rupees through its platform, with some three million drivers doing about three billion or three hundred crore trips in the last decade. The distance traversed by Uber drivers in India is apparently equivalent to going from the Earth to the Moon eighty-six thousand times, according to the company. Uber now operates in over one hundred and twenty-five cities in India, making it possible for millions of people to book a ride within minutes and helping over eight hundred thousand drivers earn a sustainable income, according to the company. Well, that's it for me for today. Have a great day ahead. Looking forward to hearing from you. Do subscribe to our newsletter and get more insights on www.thecore.in and also find links to this podcast. Bye for now. This was the Core Report with me, Govind Raj Ethiraj. 
Do stay connected with more of our coverage at the core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter at www.thecore.in that is www.thecore.in or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook as well. Now, we would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant to you including our reporting on India's vibrant manufacturing sector. Write to us at feedback at the core.in. Thank you for listening.